Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. The intro is always the most awkward part for me. I just turn out to be not that funny of a guy. and um, So I just generally have started skipping these. So we're going to be in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. But we're going to do a brief review of, verses five, of chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Uh, as Andrew said, my name is Luke. I'm on staff here with Campus Collective. Um, and I'm excited to be opening the Word of God with you guys tonight. Um, For those of you that take notes, if I could title this sermon, it would be Enabling Confidence for the Stalled Christian. Um, Not flashy or catchy, but just what I think God has for us here. So once again, Enabling Confidence for the Stalled Christian. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So if you were here last week, you will recognize the text that we began with. And the reason I started here is that I feel these sections are almost inseparable, meaning 5, 11 through 14, and 6, 1 through 12. And last week, Andrew did a great job of digging into this text, and I just want to summarize and remind us of the truths that he drew out. He showed us how the text challenges us to not be content with just having enough of God, but to ask ourselves, do we have an appetite for God? A question that I, was, I thought was helpful in my own life to reflect on this was, am I more excited about my food options for the day than exploring the depths of Christ? 
Next, he noted the text showing us how to evaluate our hunger for Christ by posing the question, what tangible ways does our faith actually play out in our living? He described how the text forces us to see that the gospel is that the reality of the gospel is not inert, but it's a transforming one. It is married to outward change. The author of Hebrews is now going to enter yet another warning text. And I want to give a a brief refresher on the purpose of these warning texts because I don't want us to get worn out or weary of these texts. There's a lot of them in Hebrews. Uh, But this book is written to Christians as an anchor It's a spurring point to keep Christians from drifting in life, as Dustin has said throughout this series. It's meant to put a fiber into our faith, the backbone, if you will. So similar to a doctor's appointment, it forces the reader to evaluate, am I healthy? And what things in my life need to change? And at times, it will ask, are you even alive in Christ? The book seems to have a particular focus on perseverance of the Christian by shoring up the faith of the believer through a series of tests meant to force you into one category or the other, either certain of your faith or certain of the lack of your faith. And in addition, it gives us some warning signs to watch out for so that we can proactively protect our faith in Christ. God desires not to crush us, but to give us confidence and hope, a certainty. So don't check out when it comes to these warning texts. They're hard, but they're for my and your good. So let's not overlook them. And in fact, I would say that if you're like me, and your natural struggle is with thinking that you're all good, and you just check out or think that these texts are mainly for somebody else in the room tonight, then you just might be in more danger than you think. And that is what God has shown me through this text. So please join me in asking God to keep us humbly engaged tonight. And on the other side of this coin, this text is not just for the self-righteous, but for the bored, for the broken as well. So let me ask you, do you feel worn down? Do you feel defeated, maybe just indifferent? or unsure if you can continue a whole lot longer. You're not alone. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13 at this reassurance. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So so texts like these are, are for us. They're for our struggling friend. They're for our church We need these texts to remind us that our struggles are not foreign, that we are not alone, that we don't hide these things or that we don't tell others to just push through them or get over them. So let's walk through this text together and and let's look at six, verses one and two. So here, the beginning of the text is gonna address the problem that is going on. And, And part of it's pretty obvious And part of it's a little bit subtle, or at least it was to me when I was studying. The problem is that these people have become dull of hearing and that they're lacking maturity. The part that was a bit more subtle as I began studying was that it seems like these Christians started out well. They received the milk, as it says in verse 11, and they have some elementary form of doctrine, as we see in chapter 6, verse 1. 
So there's some fruitful beginning to their walk with Christ. And the writer clearly has some form of connection with these people because he's gotten an update on their status. He's, he's checked in. How are they doing? And he notices that something has happened along the way. They've, they've hit some kind of roadblock. It's, it, he's saying they have become dull of hearing. It's, it's a new development in them. And this dullness of hearing has become a problem, as the text shows us, continuing through 6-2, as we see that they are still immature in their faith. And if we looked at the earlier parts of chapter 5 that were taught a few weeks ago, we would see that this dullness of hearing has separated these believers from some of the deeper truths and promises that God has given to the believer. And this has kept them from actually living out their faith. And this week, we begin to see what was actually happening in their lives. The result of these struggles has led them to get caught up in some of the old traditions. And this has kept them from actually living out their faith. These traditions that they are accustomed to is because they are a Jewish-heavy audience. Uh, they grew up knowing many things about God. They knew much of the Old Testament. Their culture was saturated with God talk. And some commentaries are helpful in discerning that it seems this is what the author is referring to when he says elementary principles in verse 1. These people could speak to the facts of God. They knew the elementary principles pertaining to God but they were at risk of falling into these generalized concepts of him and forsaking any real relationship with him, stuck in tradition. And as we engage with this text, we are met with a similar challenge. We live in what is called the Bible Belt region of the country, where people's talk is saturated with all kinds of ideas about God whether it's a country song or the political channel. And there's this expectation that good people go to this place on Sundays every once in a while that they call church because that's just what you do. And you see, if, if we aren't very careful, I think we easily find ourselves in a similar position to these people. Please hear this, especially if you grew up in church. Listen very closely. One of the greatest traps in your life is just getting comfortable by having some huge list of things you can point to and say, I don't do blank. I don't treat people too bad. I don't sleep around. I don't steal. I don't get drunk. I don't do drugs. And you've got this big list of I don't, I don't, I don't. And one of the greatest dangers in your life is feeling comfortable because of a huge list like this. Let that sink in for a minute. If, if you often bolster your confidence by a list of moral don'ts, you ought to, this text ought to draw a question to your confidence. Jesus didn't call you to a big list of don'ts. Jesus called you to the endless depths of knowing him. He called you to himself. The call is to follow him. And in this Bible Belt culture, with all its traditions, we can easily make the mistake of slipping into the traditions of some moral list of don'ts while failing to actually dig deep into gospel maturity and make Jesus the treasure of our day-to-day -day lives. Let's look at 
a great example of this in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 and 27. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandment, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become said, sad, said, How difficult is it, it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. This rich young ruler, I believe, was probably quite the stand-up guy. The stereotypical good dude. He was confident enough to stand in front of Jesus and tell him that he had his moral list together. All his don'ts checked out. But when Jesus heard his moral list, he had a sharp reply that cut beyond the fluff and into the heart of this man. Sell all your treasure. Why? Can you imagine if you were trying to share your faith and somebody came up to you with this type of interest, would this really be the reply you would meet them with? Jesus has one point here. He is asking this man, I don't want a list of moral don'ts. I want to know what do you actually treasure? See, the rich young ruler had confidence in his own value and worth as he approached Jesus. But Jesus, rather, calls us to recognize their, our own neediness and his worthiness. This man left sad because he wouldn't repent because his confidence was misplaced. His riches and lists of don'ts was too big to trade in for Jesus. This text is written to challenge us to evaluate. Is our confidence misplaced like this rich young ruler? We must be careful of misplaced confidences and cut them down before they grow so large that they keep us from taking hold of the hope of Jesus. That is the purpose of these texts. They seek our good by helping us identify things that could destroy us if we're not on guard. They're meant to free us of the crushing cycle of sin, of, of sinning, repenting, so-called, and then just getting bored by doing nothing with our freedom that we just fall back into the same things over and over. The call is to treasure Christ. And if you aren't a Christian, the sweet truths of Christ start with the reality that you can actually be freed from the things that you do over and over, hoping to be filled but instead just end up crushed. The freeing hope of the Christian is that Jesus died, rose, and ascended so that you live like you were made to, treasuring him. And in doing so, you can actually stop doing those things 
by being filled with a deeper joy. The call of this text on your life is to repent for the first time. So how is any of this possible? Let's look at verse 3 together. And this we will do if God permits. This verse is a short one, and it's easy to miss as you glance through the text, but it's absolutely crucial. The warning that the author has given here is against a stalled-out faith and a faith lacking maturation and growth. This call to growth would destroy us if we miss this verse. It is impossible to create our own growth. If you are the one that needs to grow, how could you create it within yourself? Our growth into maturity comes from the same source as the start to our new life as a Christian. It's God and God alone. This truth is freeing because if Jesus just saved us and then told us to grow, we would mess it all up. The command to grow would crush us if God didn't also provide the growth. I want to look at Hebrews 3, 14 and Philippians 1, 6. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And Philippians 1, 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. The marrying of these texts together provides this rock-solid confidence for the believer. 3.14 is telling us that those who share in Christ will hold their confidence until the end. And Philippians 1.6 tells us that God will bring the good work he began in us to completion. This is absolutely crucial. God issues the command, grow, and then he provides what we need to fulfill the commandment of growth. So our growth then does not accomplish our salvation, but rather proves that it's there. Do you see the difference? You're not growing so that you can be saved and and confident, but because you are saved, you grow. And growth is the evidence that supports the confidence that you need to persevere because it's the evidence of God working in you. This is true because as Andrew showed us last week, the gospel is not an inert gospel, but a transforming one. So growth is the evidence of God's transforming work in you. So so hold on to this. We're gonna come back to this idea at the end. At this point, I've shown my hand. This is the answer to the problem and the end point of where we're getting. But the question still remains, what exactly does it look like for us to be growing so that we can identify where we are with certainty, either the lack of growth or the presence of growth, so that our confidence can be either debunked or shored up with certainty. So as we approach verses 4 to 8, if you miss the reality of verse 3, then you will get completely confused and miss the point of verses 4 through 8. So so hold on to that. And as we move back towards this warning text, I'll give a brief reminder of where we are. These people have received the gospel and started strong. And now we're a little ways down the road, and they've lost steam. And the question the author is is putting in front of them and is putting in front of us tonight is whether this loss of steam is exposing a misplaced confidence or whether the fire simply needs rekindled in these believers. 
So as we look at verses 4 through 8, keep that in mind. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So this text is a bit challenging. And I want us to get to the main point of it, but I think I have to make at least one qualifier. And we don't have time to address all these points at depth, but to give a quick summary, this text is possibly the strongest text to support the false ideology that you can lose your salvation. That argument would cite this text and this idea of falling away after these spiritual experiences as evidence that you can, quote, lose your salvation. And to address that quickly, I think that the example of Judas is helpful. Think of all that Judas Iscariot experienced. He literally walked with Jesus, and yet Jesus says he never knew him. Additionally, in Scripture, we see that even the demons believe in God. None of these experiences necessarily mark true repentance. So to get past that and to the main point, I believe it is, one, to bring a seriousness to the life of these stalled-out Christians, and secondly, remind them that they were saved for a purpose, that the blessings of God for the Christian are found through living out your faith. And there, there's a natural progression that does occur for those who have been changed by the gospel. True repentance lasts. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 again, and in 3, verses 12 through 14. We're going to see this same phrase of, of falling away. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, so that phrase, fall away, is the same phrase in this text here. And what is it that leads people to fall away? It's the reality that there's actually an unbelieving heart at the core. You see, the, the following away is time exposing this unbelief. So the author is calling the believers to watch out for this particular false confidence that may be actually hiding some underlying unbelief. That's it. That, that's the goal of this warning text, is to sift out false hope from real hope. And that is the heart of this text, to help shore up the believer's confidence in their hope and to challenge any false hope so that those who have false hope may realize it and repent while there is still time. And I know that some of us really struggle with shame and with doubt. And if you're not careful, you could quickly be crushed 
and just be eaten alive with fear that you might be too far to be restored. But we have to keep a close eye on Scripture. And the key in this text here is repentance. This text is not saying that a repentant person can't receive Christ. What it is saying is that it is possible to be so hardened by sin and become so prideful that you literally can't repent. Hebrews 11 is going to be helpful to us when we get there, but I'll give you a little preview. It's the Hall of Faith passage. And what, we'll see, what you'll see when we get there is that none of these per- people are perfect. In, in juxtaposition of that, they are probably far worse in a worldly sense than many of us in this room. But they are a repentant people whose hope is in Jesus. The thing that disqualifies a person is not one sin, not even the big, huge ones like adultery or murder. The thing that disqualifies a person is the long, slow, resisting and resisting and resisting of God. The person may not want to go to hell and they may not want to die. Perhaps they even shed tears at the idea of death. But that is not repentance. Repentance is seeing your own sin and turning to Jesus for help. It is seeing your own sinfulness on the backdrop of God's holiness and realizing that you need help outside of yourself, placing your hope in only one place for that help, Jesus alone, and accepting the help that he has given to you through his death and resurrection and walking in a sweet joy of being restored to him. So tonight in this warning, we find hope for both the Christian and the unbeliever. God has brought both here tonight for a reason. You being here is a sign of his continued faithfulness to you. It is a call towards repentance. And the crazy thing about it is, if you are able to repent, you are incredibly blessed. See, God isn't giving hope to the perfect person. Only Jesus meets that criteria. And he's not giving hope to the really good person. He's giving hope to the repentant person. So if you're a believer, you're freed from the shame that would pin you down because Jesus has bought your repentance. And if you're not a believer, God has brought you here to offer restoration to him, to offer you repentance through Jesus. Verse 7 qualifies for us what the life of a repentant person looks like. The rain is the work of the Spirit in your life, and the land that produces the fruit is the true church. And the fruit that is produced is the evidence of the true church. So this is the life of the repentant person. Their repentance leads to continual change over the span of their life. And verse 8 qualifies for us what the life of a person who lacks true repentance looks like. The rain or the work of the Spirit, which it represents, has been present, but there is no fruit, and the lack of fruit proves the ground, which is death, a lack of life. This is the life of a person who has not repented. There is a lack of lasting and continual transformation. And as we approach verses 9 through 10, We're going to see the heart that God has for us in this text. 
He is giving this warning to sift out the real hope that the believer has from the false hope of the unbeliever. And he's using growth as a litmus test. And the goal is to encourage these believers. It may not feel like encouragement on the front, but if, you, if this really plays out and works out in your life, that will be the end point of these texts. God gives this warning saying, hey, you've got to be on guard for this. I'm worried that this might be creeping in to your life. And he immediately then leads the author to jump to hope. He doesn't want to crush them or us. He wants to give us a strong confidence. He does this by pointing towards the evidence of growth. Specifically mentioned here, they're serving the saints, which displays their love for God. I love the term evidences of grace. Evidences of grace are like little marks in your life that show the work of the Spirit playing out in your daily life. Look for these things in your life so that you can build up a confidence of the evidence of God working in you. Seasons of doubt are going to come, and we need a confidence to weather those storms. Use that phrase, evidences of grace, and use them in your own life and in others' lives. See, this is a huge part of our role in each other's lives as believers. We are meant to draw attention to the evidences of God's working in other people's lives and build them up in those things. It's so easy to criticize if you look at a person's life because you'll always be able to see someone's sin and you will crush them and you will crush your relationship if you focus on that. God is calling us to build each other up and bring glory to him by drawing attention to and fostering these evidences of grace in our own and in others' lives to grow them into massive fruit. Instead of criticizing each other, or even just joking around tonight, how about tonight after collective, we point out evidences of God's grace in each other's lives? Why don't we help root each other in the confidence that God is working in us? Life is not so light and airy that we can just always be goofing off. Don't be mistaken. I love to joke around, and I'm not saying that every moment has to be heavy. But life is heavy at a lot of points. There are a lot of hurting people here. There has to be a seriousness to our conversation and our role in each other's lives. God is working in you. Don't give up. Don't get bored. Don't lose sight. This is worth it. Keep going. Verses 11 and 12 are going to finish up this encouragement. And the, the translation is, makes it a little bit hard to see. But in verse 12, the word sluggish, I'll read it for us. Verse 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Why? To have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that word sluggish is the same word that we saw back in 11 for dull when he said they have become dull of hearing. And so now we finally see looped together the way this dullness or this sluggishness is defeated in the life of the believer. 
And it's by this confidence that God is giving to us in this text, which leads to the fruit of persevering through all of life. This confidence is one of the pieces of the backbone that we need to persevere in life. This is the aim of this text. This is the heart of all these warning passages. God wants to create in you a fiber, a a backbone that keeps you faithful until the end. God wants to bless you with enjoying him forevermore. This is what you were made for. So, to the person who has never truly repented, repent tonight while you're blessed enough to be able to. And be freed into this life of rock-solid confidence. If you're not sure how to do that, or if you want to do that, please come find me or another person on staff with Collective, anybody you see up on stage, or, or the person who invited you tonight. We would be glad to walk with you and tell you how you can repent and know God personally tonight. And to the believer, this, this is a moment to evaluate. If you're, if you're sitting back, you've kind of checked out, you feel good, I beg you to stop right now and just ask, are there evidences of grace in your life? If there aren't, you need to ask, what evidence supports the hope that you have? Do you have a misplaced confidence? And if there are evidences of grace, if you can point to something as simple as the love of God shown by serving your fellow believers, like is mentioned in this text, take heart. Let these acts of the Spirit continue to build a confidence in your heart for all the trials that will come, for the years of highs and lows, for the times of boredom and the times of trials. The believer needs this confidence to serve as the backbone of persevering. If you're going to persevere, you need the certainty of the life that Christ promises May God grow these things up in us as we seek them individually and seek to foster this growth in each other as well. Forsake the the false hopes of your moral list of do's and don'ts. Repent where you need to and take heart where you need to. Jesus bought your confidence so that you could live radically free. And as the band comes up, let's pray. God, I thank you for providing growth and for reminding us that growth is evidence of your work in us. God, I thank you so deeply that we don't have to put on a show. God, that we don't have to create some moral list of our right standing in front of you that that no matter how big our list or no matter how deep our pockets, no matter how big we feel, It's not enough to stand before you justified. God, I thank you that you have made a way that we can know you. God, I thank you for repentance, that as we fail over and over, that as we get bored, God, that you do not quit. God, that Christ continues to seek us. God, that the way to Christ is always through his finished work and not our failing in this work over and over. God, I ask that you will let our hearts rest in this. God, that 
that the believers in the room will be built up in confidence and build, build each other up in this confidence and this hope that we will put our fingers on the evidences of grace in our life that displays your work in our hearts and that we will not boast in anything but Christ. God, and I pray for the unbeliever in this room that before their heart is hardened to the point that they literally can't even repent, that tonight they will repent, that they will know joy, that they will know freedom. So God, we thank you. Prepare our hearts to worship you through song and fellowship. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.